I'm so glad to be part of this group because women are just more democratic. When even when they lead, they listen. I silenced myself. What are you saying about me? If I'm not honest and good to myself, I will speak because that is the only way. Is enough. Is enough. This is Women Emerging. Welcome, welcome, welcome. With 10 days to go till the first gathering of the 24 women on the expedition, the 24 women who are members of the expedition. I am, you can tell in my voice, I'm, I'm in a certain degree of overwhelm, uh, terror, 10 days to go till I need to start leading this extraordinary group of women. I, I feel like my leadership is going to get tested. We're going to be out there trying to find an approach to leadership that resonates with women so that more women say, if that's leadership, I'm in. That means that I'm going to be leading an expedition about leadership. And, and if that doesn't make you frightened, what would? So, but putting that aside, <laughs> putting those aside, this is a really interesting podcast. It's on an issue that matters to me an enormous amount. It's it's one that I've been fascinated in by year for years and and one of the women who's on the expedition who's going to be interviewed on this podcast and introduced me she gave a name to it she used the expression renaissance leadership and i think it's a really interesting expression come back to that so let me explain myself i am well aware of the fact that in large parts of the world women have no choices i'm also well aware of the fact and frustrated by the fact that in some parts of the world, women are endlessly presented with choices and they are binary choices. They are told to be one thing or another and certainly not both. I remember at school, I was said, they used to say, you're going to do maths or languages, chemistry or history, physics or geography. And I, I, I could, it made no sense to me. How could you possibly do physics unless you understood geography? How could you possibly do history unless you understood chemistry? How do mass and languages live as separate worlds? It made no sense, and I balked endlessly against it and was no doubt a huge headache for all my teachers. But this binary approach continued through life. In, in, in identity, you were told, yes, you're going to be a mother or you're going to be a professional. Are you going to be rural? Are you going to be urban? Are you going to be a man? Are you going to be a woman? Are you going to choose to, to live your life with a man? Or are you going to choose to live your life with a woman? Are you going to be French? Or are you going to be British? Are you be, going to be an activist or a bureaucrat? Are you going to operate in the public, the private, or the NGO sector? The, the binary choices just piled and piled up and, and continue to make almost no sense to me. And they continued into leadership. Are you going to be a hard leader, or a soft leader, a loving leader or a firm leader, a rational leader or an emotional leader? Are you going to lead on IQ or are you going to lead on EQ? Are you going to make speeches or are you going to write papers? Endless, endless binary choices and, and the pressure to force you to choose one. And my answer has always and consistently been both, if not all. Why? Because it's the reality. I am both. I'm not one or the other. 
And, and not only am I not, but I can do both and succeed in both. And the second reason why is because I deeply believe that as a leader, if you, have, if you want to have an impact, you have to be able to connect up worlds. You have to resist this binary pressure to belong in one world or another. If you're going to address the really messy problems in the world that cross boundaries, that, that, that reject everything binary, they ooze, they squelch, they cross all boundaries, the problems we're dealing with. But leaders, on the whole, don't. They stay within their own worlds, which means to me they're not not—they're doomed never to be able to really solve the complex problems. And I think the other reason why leaders have to be resist this sort of binary pressure is because leaders are managing diverse teams, diverse organizations, diverse groups. And if you insist on being binary and staying binary, then I don't think you will be able to inspire or lead diverse groups, teams, organizations, countries, cities, whatever. And of course, (laughs) it's so frustrating watching leaders who sort of impose those binary decisions on their own colleagues. And, and sometimes it's simply because they do not have the imagination to recognize that you can be both. Or even worse, you simply cannot stop judging people for refusing binary options. The binary option that has followed me through most of my life has been about whether you want to be a professional or a mother. And from the very beginning, my answer was, I'll be both. I won't get either perfect, but I will do both because that's who I am. I am both. And they they feed each other. What I've learned about leadership over the years has come as much from being chief executive of an organization as it has by being the mother of a family. Both have, have, have taught me so much about leadership. And I, I remember making a promise to myself many, many years ago that as I made more speeches, I would never, ever make a speech, least of all a speech about leadership, that didn't have stories about learning to lead through motherhood or stories of being a mother that had illustrated an important leadership point to me. I, I and, and it makes me smile, you know, people only ever remember my speeches for the, the stories about my children, <laughs> usually my, my failures. I, I talk a lot about the need for leaders, not only to refuse the binary decisions, to, but to push themselves into worlds that are unfamiliar and, and not to jump back into their own worlds because they make mistakes in unfamiliar worlds. You have to push yourself and go into new places that will be unfamiliar to you. That's where you learn. That's where you figure out how to connect up the world. That's where you figure out how you're going to deal with these messy problems that cross worlds. And I've always illustrated this with a story of, of, of my August holidays with my children in Scotland. You know, we all used to head off to Scotland. and My kids absolutely love sailing. They love the sea. They love sailing. They love small boats. And I loathe small boats. And I'm terrified of sailing. And 
quite a lot of time in August was going out into small boats, and I prefer dry land. And I remember going out once when the um, you know the weather in Scotland changes quite fast. We went out, but it was pretty quickly clear that this wasn't it. Would it was a bad decision? We shouldn't have gone out. And I remember sitting on this revolting little boat, big enough for all seven of us, but um, it couldn't have taken any more. Small boat. And sitting there sort of holding on to anything I could hold on to in terror. And then looking up and seeing Tom, who at the time was five, and had this huge grin all over his face. He was loving every minute as we crashed around. And then I heard my husband shouting to me, tie a rope to Tom. He had a life jacket on, but if we tied a rope to the life jacket, if he fell into the sea, we'd be, at least be able to pull him back into the boat. So I scrambled across this heaving and terrifying little boat that we were on and tied diligently a rope to Tom. And then later on, we landed. And I remember my husband looking at me and saying, not the anchor rope. I had literally crossed the boat and tied Tom to the anchor rope. And the truth is that the temptation is to stay on dry, dry land, not to go out at sea where I will, not through maliciousness, <laughs> not through carelessness, but through absolute inability to figure out how you operate on a boat. The temptation is to stay on dry land where I am reasonably competent. But if I did, I would miss my kids in August. And if I did, I would miss the few rare moments in Scotland in August where the sun is warm and beautiful and it's lovely being out on a small boat. And you have to keep pushing yourself out to sea, to push yourself into new spaces, to reject the binary options and and to push yourself into all kinds of new places. So I always tell stories about family, merely, I think, to illustrate that you can be a professional and a mother and and to remind that and to to and and you know sometimes people say it's terribly unprofessional the, all those stories you give Julia and the answer is okay if it's unprofessional that's fine but it does get the message across and and it recognises that I am not just the chief executive of an organisation I am <laughs> I am non-binary so Anne introduced me to the expression Renaissance leader or in French um, a Renaissance leader. And I, I, I looked it up. It's a person with many talents or areas of knowledge. And I would add a person with many talents or area of knowledge who can cross worlds, who rejects the binary choices and who connects up worlds. Anne introduced me to the concept and, and she really introduced it to me as, in her view, almost the defining characteristic of her generation. Anne is, I think, just a little bit more than a third of my age. And um, she deeply believes that leaders of her generation must be Renaissance leaders. So I asked her how she got to this realisation. I did it in the form of a game. It sounds silly, a word game. But but have a listen. And I've... I've been looking forward to this interview for ages because I've got a game, okay? A game okay. is, if I say a word, then you tell me what it makes you think of. So my first word is insects. 
Insects. That reminds me of when I was a kid, insects in the backyard were kind of like free pets. So I would just kind of dig through our compost pile and pick whichever beetles and worms I thought were the cutest. And I would keep them in little containers and water and feed them every day before school until they eventually died. Uh, and I used to be obsessed with eating mealworms and crickets as well. And I would go to the bug zoo every weekend and correct the tour guide because as a seven-year-old, I clearly knew more than them. <laughs> <laughs> this is working bugs no 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 not bugs bones bones oh that's like we just did insects uh bones bones makes me think of uh my fascination with just collecting bones since I was a kid whenever I saw them on the beach washed up I just thought it was the most fascinating thing and to think that this helped carry the structure of a living animal was just fascinating to me and so now especially after my trip to the Arctic, I was able to take back some bones that, and skulls that I found uh, of like seals and, you know, things, foxes, things like that. But yes, I just think they're fascinating and very, very cool. So next time I find a bone, I need to put it in the post and send it to you. If it's remarkable, yes, I would love that. Okay, I'll try. Wildlife. Wildlife uh, reminds me of growing up, I wasn't allowed to watch most conventional TV channels at all, except for the nature channel and watching nature documentaries, which is where I think my fascination with just exploring the world and seeing all the different kinds of animals and insects and birds and everything that lived around us and that was completely different everywhere was just fascinating. And I obviously have a big passion for helping these uh, helping wildlife survive in their natural environments, which has been so affected due to global warming. So yes, it's a complicated thing, but I think in an alternative life, I'd love to just be in a forest and film and study wildlife. In Canada? I would love to actually in Canada and the Arctic, but also all around the world, yeah. Next word, archaeology. Archaeology also reminds me when I was growing up, I wanted to be a paleontologist or an archaeologist. Um, until I found out, I think being in archaeology is one of the lowest unemployment, uh, sorry, the highest unemployment rates ever. So I was like, okay, maybe not. But I just think sitting over a piece of dust or dirt in some random country and digging up bones very slowly and meticulously sounds like something I would love to do, especially since I have a passion for cleaning and organizing. <laughs> so I feel like Digging up bones, I would actually find very satisfying and peaceful. But yeah, I think it's fascinating to uncover history and see who has lived before us and what kinds of lives they had. All that is just so fascinating. Black and white films. Black and white films. I was raised on silent films. Uh, well, my first film actually was a sound film. It was Eisenstein's Alexander Nevsky. Uh, and I became so obsessed with the night Alexander Nevsky that I dressed up as him for Halloween, which was an interesting choice for my kindergarten costume because nobody knew who I was. But yes, and I've always just loved Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, 1930s musicals, pre-code films, all these things. And it's such a huge influence on my life. You can see behind me lots of photos of dead people that I love. But yeah, I really credit silent film and sound film, but, uh, you know, until the 1970s or 80s of really shaping who I am and how I carry myself and who I aspire to be. Tell me more there, black and white films. What's the, what's the attraction of um, silent black and white films over colourful speaking films? I think 
silent films, if you, if you really sit down without your phone and you watch a Charlie Chaplin film, like The Kid or City Lights or, or The Circus, I personally get moved to tears watching these films. I don't know if I can explain why, but there's something so simplistically beautiful in the storytelling and the fact that it is told through just actions and emotions you see on someone's face and the occasional title card with text on it of what they're talking about. And it was really the first time people were really telling stories through moving image. So there was all this room to experiment within the constraints that they had, which was no sound. And it's just beautiful. And also Charlie Chaplin's scores accompanying the music are just breathtaking, breathtakingly, again, beautiful. Sorry, I'm, 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 my adjectives this morning are not on fire, uh, but- Beautiful is beautiful. Sorry? Beautiful is beautiful. I think Beautiful is beautiful, yeah. And I think there's just something so lost about that era that we just don't really have anymore. And the idea of not having any technology and just calling someone when you need to call someone and no computers, nothing. So perhaps there is some nostalgia enwrapped with that, but I think the stories, particularly that Charlie Chaplin told, and Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd's characters were equally different. Charlie Chaplin's character of the Tramp really was so resilient and always so inventive of trying to find ways to fix a problem when something occurred in his life that caused discomfort or he saw someone else struggling. And so perhaps in some ways, Charlie Chaplin's inventiveness could have inspired me in my own creating as well which is something I just thought of, never thought about it like that, but it is true. It's true, I suspect. The next word is entrepreneur. Entrepreneur, very interesting word, at least in my life, because I feel like when I was still finding out my identity and who I was right around 17 and 18 years old, I really got swept up with this sort of young entrepreneur movement and how cool it was to be one and having your own company and like hopefully having a startup and all of that. and. I still think it's really fascinating. And a lot of my friends do embark in that role, but I discovered after a few experiences that perhaps being just an entrepreneur was not for me. And I think I am more of an inventor who is someone who has an idea and makes it into something physical in front of them. Um, and they're lucky to make some money off of it. <laughs> and then an entrepreneur takes these physical prototypes and makes them marketable and earns much more money usually than an inventor. But, you know, I've had, a lot of experiences where people have tried to take advantage of me in the business world, which also kind of turned me off from it. I'm sure one day in the future, I'll kind of embark more seriously into that world. But for now, I really just do enjoy the creative part of making an idea. So all of those bugs and bones and films, what's the, what's, what's the thread? What's the common, is, is there a common thread? Does it matter if there is one or not? You used an expression to me once of um, a, a renaissance woman, a renaissance woman. What did you mean when you used it? I like the term renaissance woman or man or whomever to refer to kind of a large percentage. And I think a growing percentage of people my age in their twenties and younger which is that we're gonna have all these different skills in all these different areas of art and science. And we may only be like an expert in one of two of them, but we're also going to become okay with the fact that we have all these different skills in different areas. And we're not like the best at it, but we're, you know, functional, we're mediocre at all these skills. And I really think that's that the best inventions happen when we bring together all these different areas of our lives and see how we can 
uniquely combine them to create something really quite novel. Um, and so a Renaissance man or woman is someone who has many talents, a jack of all trades, and that's kind of how I see myself. I have all these different interests. And I remember when I was choosing my university degree in grade 12, I wanted a degree where I could like specialize and study in like two or four different areas because I had so many different interests, but it was very difficult to find a program that would really fit my interests in both the arts and sciences in, because usually you would go study the sciences or you would go study the arts and you couldn't really combine them in an interesting way, which is why something like NYU's Gallatin, from what I hear, they allow you to choose two different degree specialty areas that could be completely different. And if I had gotten into that university, I would have gone there. But instead, I settled with doing an English literature degree, which let, let me learn about storytelling and film, which is my other main passion. And then outside of school, I balanced having my own company, getting patents, speaking, inventing and all of that. Yes. And it, it will be the characteristic of your generation, won't it, Renaissance? I think so, for sure. Anne has been an, a hugely successful inventor from the age of 15. And it's fascinating to discover the roots of this being in refusing to choose between bugs and bones, arts and sciences and instead choosing to combine things and as a result to invent things, some extraordinary things too. Her refusal to choose is, is very interesting and it, it is very much about refusing to choose between things in the outside world. Let's move on to Fatima now because her refusal to choose is a very different form. It's a refusal to to choose between two different versions of herself is much more an internal world. Her refusal to regard her own identity as binary and to combine the identities within herself. Do you, how do you combine all the different versions of you inside yourself without getting confused? Very good question, Julia. Uh, Julia. Uh, because I am Belgian, I have a Belgian nationality, but I also have the Moroccan nationality. I am European, but I am also African. I am a mom. I am uh, I'm now uh, I, I, I'm doctor in social and political sciences, but I am also uh, um, uh, a social entrepreneur, uh, active in the grassroots. And it's very different a kind of identity. So you can combine your multiple identities as a richness, as an added value, and not as um, as a something very uh, heavy uh, to, to 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 have. And I am so proud huh, to have this headscarf, to have my uh, ear, ear earrings, your beautiful earrings. dangling dangling beautiful earrings. Yes, and uh, so uh, yes. So, and I think that when you are proud of what you are, people, they feel this energy. They feel this proudness. And uh, you can inspire the older woman, I hope. How long did it take you to realize this? Oh, I love your question, Julia, because it's so, so, so relevant, so interesting, because it was not easy to combine. All of this because when I was a teenager, it was very difficult and it was um, 
like something uh, who broke grinding you. grinding yes. and pulling apart something that was yes. tearing you apart yeah yes so i was looking for my who i am how to combine my multiple identities and it takes time uh, i read a lot of book i i read i uh, i was like um you know um a traveler in different uh, philosophy religions to to understand how can i be myself even if i have a multiple identities and uh, i don't know if you you know the book of paulo uh, coelho l'alchimiste uh, mm -hmm. and in, in this book um, he the the man traveled all around the world and the treasure was close to him why did that speak to you because what you went everywhere looking for answers and and where actually was the answer because i find it in my uh, in the culture of uh, for my parents and grandparents and i understand that uh, for me uh, islam can be also because i am muslim a muslim woman and islam can also be universal and the principle of islam uh, i can find the principle of islam in buddhism in catholicism in atheism uh, because this principle is serenity, peace, is justice, is solidarity, is love. And uh, to combine the Moroccan uh, part of my identity and Belgian uh, part of my identity is possible. So I can eat uh, chocolate with a Moroccan tea and it's very delicious. <laughs> so, and when I understand that all of my part of this identity is possible to combine I feel a kind of peace in my heart and what I really want is that the new generation can uh, feel this that can feel this possibility to 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 not deny one of my the part of my identity to be what I am and it's the danger because in Belgium and in France you have uh, politics of assimilation and this kind of politics of assimilation is very violent because they told you you don't speak Arabic or Czech or Spanish. You have to speak French. You need to be in this French culture. And it's very dangerous. So uh, it's another climate. When you see the French political debate with Marine Le Pen, and she said, if I am elected woman uh, with a headscarf, it's forbidden in the streets, in the public space. So you know that our reality, our social political context can also have an influence with uh, our identity. So, um, but when you, when you can be proud of this, oh, it's, it's happiness, it's happiness. Because uh, for example, my mom has never been to school, never and my mom and i am doctor since a few months and it was my mom who encourages me to go to school to study at school and so my mom was my model even if she was never been to school and i understand that the réussite so the the achievement the achievement the achievement is not related to studies or money or material things, but it's 
related on values, emancipation, freedom, uh, autonomy, and to be powerful as a woman. My mom wanted for me what she hasn't had is possibility to make my own choice for my life. So, voila. <laughs> and it's a very different way of looking at Renaissance. It's the realization that Renaissance could be inside yourself as well as external. I think sometimes I think that you see young women struggling with the different versions of themselves and you think in the end you will achieve a renaissance state of realizing that the many forms of you are are your strength but you feel that you want to help them get to that point much quicker yes um what i uh, what i missed uh, to my life it was some um world model who can give me maybe some keys to understand that even if you have some contradictions, paradox, you have to accept it and to let it go and to say it's okay. And for, but for me, letting go is not just passive. It's also to give some priorities and to, uh, to, 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 to take um, the choice that what people think about me, I don't care. So when you have some people who want to simplify your identity or to um, to to uh, close, uh, enfermé, so to to enclose uh, uh, to close yes. you down, to close yes. you down. Yes, just in one identity, all right. You don't care, so you can't think what you think. I am who I am, and I am brilliant. I am beautiful. I am powerful. And I go ahead with people who want to go ahead with me. And for me, lâcher prise, so letting go, is to, to, to give priority to the voice which is inside you. And when you just listen to your intuition, your, you, you are in a good way. And, uh, and the problem as a woman, as a woman from minority, you have a lot of social pressure from the majority, but also from your, your community. And it's not always easy because you cannot enter to a case, to, to a category. So when you accept that you are different, you are uh, multiple, uh, you are, uh, and, 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 and for me, it's very new to, 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 to because now I say stop with the, Syndrome of imposter, syndrome of imposter. How many years I, uh, I had to study to have legitimacy? How many years I had to always smile and always to be a perfect? To be a... no, I said no. I'm now 40 years old. I said stop. I am who I am, and I am with humility, uh, Julia. But I am also um, proud of my story, my struggles, my. My difficulties also uh, to be who who I am who I am arrived who I am arrived now. I must tell you how I how I met Fatima. I um I heard about this crazy woman who was renaming the streets of Brussels, and I absolutely had to meet her. And and, and when I did, I met a woman who 
whose proposition was pretty straightforward. You cannot empower the women of Brussels. You cannot say that the civic space in the middle of the great city of Brussels should be a place where women are. You couldn't do that if the city's main streets were all named after men. So Fatima had taken on the task with a lot of other women in Brussels to rename many of the streets after great women. So Anne and Fatima are both Renaissance Renaissance leaders, it seems to me. Um, and I do slightly wonder if the expression will stick and become one of the key expressions of the expedition even before we start off. Renaissance women seem to be women of many talents and many areas of knowledge who connect up worlds and who connect up themselves inside and who say stop stop when they're asked to choose and that sounds pretty good to me so it's 10 days to go i am consumed by imposter syndrome who am i to lead such a group of women uh, 10 days ago i'm gonna have to overcome my imposter syndrome somehow keep um keep sending messages keep giving this podcast five stars keep giving reviews please 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 two reasons one because your reviews will catapult the podcast into the big time and second reason is that reading them does help me keep imposter syndrome at bay Thank you for listening to the podcast. Your voice and perspectives are crucial to the success of the expedition, and we would love you to become a partner to Women Emerging. You can do this by subscribing to this podcast and joining the Women Emerging group on LinkedIn.